Welcome to the Positive Productivity Podcast, episode 318. The Positive Productivity Podcast was created to empower entrepreneurs to achieve and appreciate personal and professional success. I'm your host, Kim Sutton, and if you're ready, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. This is your host, Kim Sutton, and I'm so happy that you are here to join us today. I'm also thrilled to have Sherry Strong with us. Sherry is the founder of Return to Food and Sweet Freedom. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you so much for having me, Kim. Oh, you are so welcome. And listeners, you've heard of me say it before, and you're going to hear me say it over and over again. Positive productivity is not about perfection. I forgot to turn the space heater off before we started recording. So I apologize <laughs> to you, Sherry, and to any listeners if you should hear it pop up, but I think I'm going to deal with that little buzzing rather than sitting here freezing while talking to you. Fair enough. I would love to hear, and I'm sure the listeners would as well, how you got to where you are today. Well, I often will tell people that I was born an addict. And by that, I refer to what the chief health administrator in Amsterdam would refer to as the world's most dangerous drug. And that drug was refined sugar. And my mother was convinced by doctors and nurses that this new baby formula was better for her baby than breast milk. And in the 60s, formula, baby formula had what I call a lethal recipe of refined sugars, oils, salts, grains, chemicals, including things like MSG, which is a known neurotoxin, excitotoxin also classified as. So growing up in what I call the culinary equivalent to a gastronomic black hole, where we had poverty mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, food was not something that was a gift of in my family. I remember growing up often thinking that it was a form of child abuse, what we were eating. And my family thought I was crazy. They, everyone, I remember looking around the dinner table and looking at everyone thinking, no one's complaining about this food. And, <laughs> and they're looking at me, what is wrong with her complaining about this food? And so I often make the joke that I don't know if there are past lives or future lives, but if there is such a thing, I came to this incarnation for the food. And through many years of having sugar addiction and the problems that actually creates in the body, I managed to, by my mid-20s, work myself up to twice my size. So I like to make a joke that I wasn't 10 foot 4 and I haven't had a massive height reduction, but I can now literally fit into one pant leg of the pants I wore when I was at my biggest. Wow. And I think we're a society that really focuses on looks. Mm -hmm. And so we tend to really pay attention to people's weight. And although, you know, being twice my size was not fun and I didn't feel have a great body image at the time, I would say the worst thing that was actually happening was the depression, the brain fog, the lack of energy, and just a real lack of desire to really be alive in the world. And I realized I couldn't diet. So dieting never worked for me. Every time I went on a diet, I gained weight. So there was a certain threshold at which I thought, <laughs> stop dieting. This is not working. Sherry, can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah. Why did that happen? Why did what, which bit When you went on a diet that you gained weight? Ah, well, there's many reasons. And that is, as a human species, our brains are not geared to diet. So we are geared to eat when food is abundant and not to deprive ourselves. And so dieting doesn't work because, number one, it doesn't address the real reason why we're over-consuming food. So it just says, 
stop eating or don't eat this or just eat this. And it doesn't actually address the reason why we're consuming too much food. So if you don't address the actual program design, you know, adjusting the page is not going to to make a difference if you think about it in kind of a tech term, right? So the reason why we're actually making food choices happen for mental, emotional, spiritual reasons, as well as physical reasons. But until we actually understand those and address those, just say, don't eat this and eat this is not useful or helpful. And the 5% of times where it does work, it's because people are just so ready and they're there and all the other pieces are in place that they just, any diet will work for them. It's not one diet over the other. So unless you start to address the mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical drivers of the food choices we make and have a natural connection to our food, our body, and the planet, most diets are temporal and and they're not going to actually take root and and create lasting change. So that's basically the journey I went on to discover all of that. And I moved into positions of influence. I was the Victorian chair of Nutrition Australia. I was the Melbourne president of Slow Food. I was consulting to the government on nutritional policies and speaking around the country on television and radio and in the media. And I still had a form, what I called a dirty little secret, and that I was still addicted to sugar. Now, I was no longer having half a liter of ice cream for breakfast anymore, eating, you know, chocolate chip cookies, you know, by the batch or a full chocolate cake in a day, but I was just wanting it. So I just have one thing here and just one thing there and just one cup of coffee with some sugar in it and just, you know, one piece of pizza or one glass of wine. And over the course of the week, I still had sugar addiction. And it really wasn't until I almost lost my mother due to complications that really came from her being addicted to sugar, weakening her immune system. And when she took an antibiotic that's routinely prescribed with fluoroquinines in it, her system was that weak and she succumbed to fluoroquinine toxicity and almost died. And she still, to this day, doesn't have full use of her hands and her legs. She can't walk on her own and she can't have you know, she doesn't have full functioning of her hands, but her immune system was compromised. And it was one of those things where I was in the hospital with her. And I looked over at this woman who was next to her and who was admitted into the bed next to her. And they were around the same age. This woman was tall and slender. And by any account, someone would have assumed that she was healthier than my mother. But she'd been admitted into the hospital because she'd had a diabetes induced stroke and broke her leg in the fall. And so she's in the hospital having broken her leg after a diabetes-induced stroke, and her family brought in a 24 tray of donuts and sat it at the end of her bed. Yeah, way. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, and not only just that, I was looking at the hospital food, what they were prescribing for heart patients, you know, just the most insane things that they were doing around the food piece. And I just looked around and I thought, and I could see the nurses and the doctors, most of them looked really unhealthy. And when I started to do research about what doctors ate, what nurses ate, and how people are actually taking nutritional advice from people who had not studied nutrition properly. At best, nowadays, doctors get two weeks of nutritional training. I've been studying for over 30 years, and there's still so much to learn. So there's no way that two weeks is even going to touch on what it is that people need to know. And the other piece is when the doctor did come and talk to this woman who had diabetes, the conversation that she had, I could barely understand because I have three decades of training, but there's no way the layperson would have understood what the doctor was trying to tell them. So there's a way in which you need to communicate what it is we're meant to be eating as the human species. And that's the work that I'm dedicated to now is I basically 
branded myself as a food philosopher for the last two decades because I've developed philosophies and strategies that help people relate to food, their body, and the planet in a way they just get it. It makes sense. There's no nutritional confusion when you follow the principles that I wrote about in my book, Return to Food. Wow. I remember growing up and going to, well, I remember the name of the store. It was called Sugar Creek. But I think people today would more recognize the name of 7-Eleven, at least in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I remember going there because it was the most convenient when I was with my mom. And Mm -hmm. Soda, two liters of soda was always more affordable than a gallon of milk, like three yeah. times more. So when yeah. times were tough and mom, if you're listening, I'm sorry, I just had to put it out there. When times were tough, it was the soda that got picked up to drink and not the milk. Yeah. And yeah. I remember that so distinctly because now as a parent myself, we've struggled financially from time to time, but I've kept my eye. I've always kept my eye on the price of milk. I'm not saying that we don't have soda in the house and I know we shouldn't. I've actually taken myself off of it, but I've been delighted to see that milk has become more affordable. Sherry, I I grew up in New York, in Rochester, New York, which is upstate, western New York. But after college, I moved outside of New York City. And since I've left there, I do believe I heard that they've banned soda sizes, like over a certain number of ounces. I think I'm saying that right. Like you can no longer go to 7-Eleven and get the super slurpy or biggie size or whatever, because they are trying to control to get it under control. But I can see where the addiction to sugar would come in. And I'm going to go as far as to say I'm addicted to sugar. Yeah, well, as long as you're a human being, you're everyone's vulnerable to sugar addiction. And Mm -hmm. depending on how resilient your genes and your body are, your conditioning from birth and how nourished you are will determine your predisposition to sugar addiction. And when you look at how sugar's made, it makes total sense. I remember when I was a chef in Australia in the 90s, I was studying on food and cooking by Harold McGee. And I I saw how sugar was made. I remember thinking to myself, look, never made heroin or cocaine before, but I'm pretty sure that those processes are similar. And essentially they are in that if you take cane juice in its natural state, and if you've ever had a glass of it that's freshly pressed, it's hard to finish a whole glass. And the reason is, is because there's tons of nutrients in it. So the body says, I've had enough. Whereas you can take two liters of a soft drink and because there's no nourishment in it and it's highly addictive, the body, it actually shuts off the brain's receptor to say, stop drinking. Because two things are, one, it shuts off the brain receptors, but the body's always trying to get nourished. So when you have something going to the body that's not nourishing, it says, feed me more, I'm not getting what I need. So we've learned now through studying the brain and the brain scans is that cocaine lights up the brain in a certain pattern in the dopamine receptors. And when you put refined sugar in the same brain and compare it, it lights up the dopamine receptors eight times more than cocaine. So it's lighting up different, not just brighter, but more regions of the brain than cocaine does. So, oh my God. Yeah. And now we have this substance and we are putting it in baby formula. So people are having it right from birth. It's creating, setting us up for addiction. But even if you're breastfed, doesn't mean you're completely invulnerable to sugar addiction. And it's in everything. It's not just in our sweet treats. It's in our savory things. I mean, I picked up a pack of beef jerky when I was traveling recently thinking, you know, just want something to, you know, stabilize my blood sugar. And I took one bite of it and I spit it out. It tasted like candy. When I looked at the packet, 30% of the serving was actually refined sugar. So that does two things. 
one, sugar's a lot cheaper than meat, so that company's making more money if people thinking they're buying a product. And two, it's more addictive, so you're much more likely to buy it if palates acclimated that sweet taste. Beef jerky with sugar. 30% of the serve was sugar. So if there's 100 grams, 30 grams of that was sugar. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it's in all kinds of things that you wouldn't guess. And even people will be drinking green smoothies from juice bars that are mm. massive. They're like a liter of a smoothie. One, we'd never consume that in nature. And to 70% of that serve can actually be reconstituted juices, which just basically reacts like sugar in the body. So, and then people are drinking it down, having this massive hit of sugar in a very short period of time. Most people, when they have a soft drink, know that they're not consuming anything that's going to help. But most people don't think that when they're having a smoothie and they're wondering why they can't wait or why they can't concentrate. All I had was this green smoothie. So it can be quite a confusing path for people and getting that sorted out and making sense of it and understanding, you know, what it is that we're meant to be eating, how we're meant to be eating as the human species is a process that we need to relearn. It's encoded in our DNA, but we need to relearn it because for most of us, we've had decades of conditioning that are confusing us. And I've learned it goes even beyond sugar. Absolutely. And maybe this is just, I don't have your 30 years of experience, so I know I'm going to say some stuff that's not right. So please just jump in and correct me. However, I have 30, almost 40 years of dealing with hypoactive thyroidism Mm -hmm. since birth, and I'm about to be tested for celiac. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize until I was actually in the hospital about a month ago, actually a month ago, almost exactly now, that my thyroid levels were way off, like my body wasn't accepting it. And the doctor said, we need to get you checked out for that. But I didn't realize until he said that. And I started looking at everything that I was eating, Mm -hmm. how much gluten I'm actually eating every Mm -hmm. single day. And I almost feel like I'm addicted to that. You are. Most are. And here's another interesting thing that's really important for every North American to understand is the gluten we're eating is very different to the gluten that the Italians are eating. Most of our gluten comes from wheat that's genetically modified and that has another layer of toxic effects on the body. And this is not debatable information. It's only debatable in the United States where and Canada, where we're not given, you know, the full extent of the understanding of how genetic modification impacts the human body. Whereas in Europe, they get it. They totally understand that. And I've had many people, clients who were celiac or had severe gluten intolerance, and they can go to Italy and eat a pizza and pasta and not have a problem. So it's not just there's a few things that are happening. One, the human species was never meant to eat wheat in the amounts that we're eating it. And all you have to do is look at how our mandible is geared and made. And if you have a the tiniest little bit of husk of wheat, it's just as repellent as us eating dirt, right? It feels terrible on the palate. Whereas if you look at beasts like a horse or a cow, they eat it whole. And there's no thing as a cow freaking out because it got a little bit of husk and it's, you know, wheat. <laughs> they just naturally eat it that way. So if you look at how we're meant to eat as the human species, nature tells us what to eat and the quantities to eat it in by how easily it's obtained in nature and how we naturally respond to it as a species. We are given kinesthetic abilities to interact with our food and understand what we're meant to be eating. In a natural environment, that's great when we were, you know, pure, but through many generations of being separated from nature, we've lost our kinesthetic connection to what it is we're meant to be eating. So nature tells us what we're meant to be eating and the quantities we find it in in nature. So if you think about it, there's a hierarchy in nature of air, water, vegetation, 
we most life dependent on air, we're second most life dependent on water, and third where as a species, where we get most of our nourish from is from vegetation that comes from the soil. So if you think about it, even in that respect, there's a hierarchy of we're meant to be eating because the harder it is to obtain in nature, the less we actually require it as a species and the harder we have to work for it. And so the things that are harder to obtain in nature also give us the biggest energy hit, which is why there's no obesity in nature, because we work off the corresponding energy to actually get that food. And which is why the only time you would find, you know, in history, people becoming obese in tribes is when they were either the cook who had access to all the food, or they were the tribal leader who had lots of people providing them food and they weren't working it off themselves because they were in that leadership role. Not always, but more often than not. So if we cannot get something in nature, not only do we not need it, it's harmful to the body and the planet. And unfortunately, most of us in Western civilization, and it's spreading throughout the whole world now, unfortunately, we're eating from that third area of things we could never actually get in nature, which genetically modified food, including our wheat and soy and many, many other things we could never make in nature. This is not breeding. This is not hybridizing. This is a genetic modification that can only happen as a result of very complex processes in a laboratory. And so the further something is away from nature, the more harmful it is to the body and the planet. And so we're starting to eat not just things we couldn't make in nature, but we're now starting to eat natural things in unnatural amounts that we would never have in nature. So an example of that is... I ask people, you know, if you had to source all the berries so you could have a cup of blueberries in your smoothie every single day, what would that look like? How many berry plants, blueberry plants would you have to plant? How much time would it take you to actually accumulate all those blueberries? In a natural environment, you would dry them. But how much freezer space would you have to have <laughs> if you had to gather all your own blueberries, pop them in the freezer? Like, and then you just extrapolate over all the other things that you're eating and start to understand that when you put four cups of apple juice from constitute, you know, reconstituted in your smoothie with your cup of blueberries, you know, and your spinach and all these other things, you can see that over the period of a year, that wouldn't happen in a natural environment. And even if we're eating natural things, it can create an imbalance in the body. And everyone, you know, who I will initially talk to this, who has the standard, you know, American diet will just be overwhelmed. And they're like, oh my God, where do I begin? You know, this is just too overwhelming. And the truth is, is that I totally get it. And if I had to do everything that I've learned over the last 30 years in a month, I would probably wouldn't even get started. But that's your phrase that you keep saying over is progress, not perfection. Mm -hmm. And that's how you actually make things happen. So you make one change, one change in your life. And then when you've got that handled and it becomes where I say this phrase, this is how I do life. So I just would not wake up in the morning without having a liter of lemon water. That's just how I do life. And if I do something different, it's kind of a shock to my system. So one of the first things I do for people is to get them to start hydrating properly. And that means finding a source of spring water. And spring water is cheaper than soft drink and, <laughs> and milk and anything else. And it is after weaning. It is our primary source of hydration. We're meant to be. We're not meant to consume milk as a species after weaning any species on the planet doesn't drink milk past weaning. And not only that, we're not meant to drink milk of another species that's designed to make that species 1200 pounds. So spring water is the number one thing that I get people hydrating their body with. And just that thing alone will impact their sugar levels, which will impact their 
mental acuity, their brain fog, their energy levels, and the weight will start to come off as well. So that's just to switch one thing from hydration to something that is going to be good for your body. It's going to make a change on every single level. And then from there, once that's handled, we implement the next change. And that is to start to nourish our bodies. Yeah. Wow. I noticed when I stopped drinking soda, and I don't even want to admit how much I was drinking, let's just say more than a couple cans a day. Mm -hmm. First, I did have to deal with the caffeine headaches. But Mm -hmm. when you're coming off of any drug that you're addicted to, you know, that happens. I tried to give up soda and coffee at the same time. I gave up on that because (laughs) I needed to work, you know, so I decided, okay, let's just do one at a time. But soda was the right one. Thank you. And I've shared this or in episode in the past. So listeners, I invite you to go back and listen to those. And actually, I'll put them in the show notes or which I should say right away. You can find at thekimsutton.com forward slash PP318. So 318. There was a day that I was interviewing a prospective business coach from the McDonald's drive through <laughs> okay. How bad is that? I had my kids screaming in the back seat because I hadn't planned accordingly. And not only had I not planned what I was going to do with the kids, but I hadn't planned dinner. So rather than going into the grocery, I went through the McDonald's drive-thru. And then, so that was like a big awakening for me. Oh my gosh. Then I started just going to the grocery more and I'm not going to name the local grocery. I don't need like a Oprah beef scandal on positive productivity podcast, you know? <laughs> But I don't know if some of the younger listeners would get that reference, but you do. Yeah, Sherry. Yeah, Yeah. I got it. I find it so comical that in my grocery, the bulk food section, which is partially good because you can go and get bags of whatever you need, but it also provides you bins of candy and the Mm -hmm. bulk food is right next to the produce. Mm -hmm. But on this particular day, I was walking past a display of avocados and my body just screamed at me, you need those. So I picked up Mm. some and I got home and I just devoured one right away. And I was like, huh, I wonder what the nutritional value is of this. So I hopped onto Google and I looked it up and I found out that an avocado, even though it does have fats in it, has as many calories as a Big Mac from McDonald's. But the nutritional value is so much greater. I did not feel hungry after that avocado. Yeah. Well, avocados are pretty much a perfect food and the fat in the avocado can actually help you burn fat. So that whole kind of fat phobic approach to weight loss and nutrition is outdated. It was actually, there is some politics and machinations going on by the sugar industry who deflected the fact that sugar is actually a bigger cause for heart disease than any of the fats. Even we're talking the horrible fats in our diet, that sugar is actually a bigger cause of heart disease. So that avocado that you're eating, when you start to eat from a perspective of whole foods, you never have to count a calorie again. You just never have to do it. Because what happens is as the body gets nourished, it will tell you to stop eating certain things. It's only when the body is addicted and malnourished that it overeats. It's only by shutting off, you have to consciously shut off and stop listening to your body in order to overeat on whole foods. Not saying it doesn't happen, but it's much more rare. So your Big Mac might have the same calories as the avocado, but it has no real valid usable nutrients and and hundreds of chemicals in it. So like that, that compound that makes that burger taste like it's been on a char grill, even though it's cooked on a stainless steel grill, is a flavor compound that can have up to 400 ingredients in it. And you as a consumer have absolutely no legal right to know what's in it because that recipe is patented protected. Yeah. So 
Ever since then, I've been picking up, in full disclosure, I've been picking up the bags of four avocados from Mexico because it's more affordable mm-hmm. to get that than the, the avocados in the U.S., which one costs as much as that bag of four. But I've actually, mm-hmm. my son has actually started enjoying those. He's like, mom, can I have an avocado? I'm like, that's what he wants. Awesome. And yeah. And it feels so great. And he's 15. He's a freshman in high school. Mm-hmm. He's been working out this year with the football team. He has never been into sports ever, but he's becoming more conscious about the food decisions that he's making. And it feels so great. I can't say that I'm the influence, but hopefully I'm influencing that he's seen me cut out the soda and start eating avocados and really be trying, not fully succeeding, but trying to make a better effort. I want to jump though, Sherry, if you don't mind just for a quick second, this is not about food. My husband and I both started smoking very young. Um, My Mm -hmm. husband was definitely not legal age and well, to be totally honest, neither was I now that I think about it. So I can't just blame it on him. But we did stop smoking. And I don't know, I think I've admitted this once on the podcast, I vape still. And I know here in America, that there's a lot of legislation out there that's even getting down on e-cigarettes. And I understand the nicotine is still there. I totally understand. But the tobacco industry is getting involved because they are losing market share and they want to continue selling Mm -hmm. cigarettes versus losing market share to the vaping brands. Yes, there is still glycerin and nicotine, but the 1600 chemicals that are in a cigarette are not in the e-liquid anymore. I am not saying listeners that vaping is healthy. I am not at all. And I will wean myself off that too someday. It will be a huge celebration. But like you said about dieting, we have to be fully prepared. I understand the circumstances. I'm just glad that I can breathe and actually push my kids in a swing again. But Mm. it amazes me just like the unhealthy food industry that the legislation in the US at least is not helping us out. No, we have a system where our government, and this is in most countries, with the exception around the food in Europe, they're much more progressive and protective of their population. But basically, uh, we can't wait till the government or the food industry changes. We have to change. The, The food will only be available as long as people are buying it. So if you stop buying a product, a company can't survive if everyone stops buying it, not just you. So we have an industry that controls our government. And it's just the logistics. They have way more money and lawyers and lobbyists to keep the government busy, you know, doing somersaults, trying to just take care of the basics. So it has to, I learned this when I worked consulting to government. I remember looking around at the table and the other people on the board and looking and thinking, everyone here is terrified to make a decision that they're afraid to lose their position or their credibility by making a stance as something as simple as saying, stop eating refined flour and sugar. Like that would never happen because they're terrified of funding that comes from, you know, third and four layers down to actually try and find out where that comes from to that actually controls how things work. So we as consumers have to take our power back and stop blaming. We need to take 100% accountability and we need to start to make those changes. Now, If you're not taking in 1,400 chemicals and you're vaping, that's a huge leap, right? And 
I always say in Return to Food, I have a whole chapter on it called Pick Your Poisons. Because if you look at any traditional mm -hmm. culture, Kim, they will have something they smoke or something they eat or something they drink that alters their state. And sometimes that comes from what they refer to as spirit plants, which take them somewhere else. And they have different kinds of experiences from anything to tobacco, to marijuana, to ayahuasca. They have those things. Now, for me, my drug of choice is chocolate. <laughs> That's my spirit plant, right? And I often say... I I was going to ask you that. How can I like reduce sugar, but not reduce, like not eliminate chocolate? Because, I can tell you. Yes. I can tell you how. Please. So I often say that I'd rather live to 100 with chocolate than 110 without chocolate. But here's the thing. My palate for chocolate has changed dramatically over the years. If you offered me a normal kind of store-bought chocolate, so say like a Reese's Pieces or Cadbury's or any of those, I wouldn't eat it. It doesn't tempt me. I don't get any joy from it. It's just so sickly sweet to me. It doesn't taste good. I feel terrible after it. But I have a recipe for something called nut pucks, which are like almond butter cups or pucks. We refer to them as in Canada. And if you eat them, you're a nut pucker that have just a little touch of maple syrup in them for the sweetener or maybe some lacuma as the sweetener. And they are so delicious. And the thing is, is you just need two of them. And because every single ingredient in there is something that nourishes, energizes and protects the body, it's something you thoroughly enjoy. But it's nourishing your body so you don't need a lot of them. And every single person who tries this recipe says it's superior to the chocolate that they have and that it doesn't actually create more chocolate cravings, if that can make sense to some people. So it's truly satisfying. Our bodies are naturally drawn towards anything that ha raises you know, our blood sugar or alters our state. Sherry, I'm still laughing at nut puckers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my littles go to a daycare. I have a three-year-old twins and a four-year-old. Mm -hmm. Their classmates have birthdays and their parents bring in Ziploc bags full of whatever favorite candy mm -hmm. they pick out. And at the time of this recording, we're about to approach Easter. So we had a huge Easter egg hunt at our church last weekend and at 50,000 Easter eggs, no joke, each one with candy inside. Yeah. So we've been having to hide the candy because they will rip open the bag yeah. and rip it all apart. And I'm still laughing about nut pucker because I would love to introduce my children to a healthier alternative, but I'm laughing because I can imagine them running around the house saying nut pucker, nut pucker. <laughs> you know, it's a, <laughs> with my kids, it would easily turn into something else because they're testing us every single day. Is that a cuss word, mama? Is that a cuss word? Sorry, I know that's a tangent, but I'm going to ask you, would you be open to providing that recipe so we can include it in the show notes? I would love to. I will gather, I will seriously provide a video of my children with that because we totally need something healthier in our house. And actually, I'm just cracking up thinking about it. I can't wait until I can get them to say that. That would be so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> my husband will say, great, great, mama. That's return payment for him buying lightsabers for Christmas. <laughs> I promise you. So the actual thing is called a nut puck and a person who eats it is a nut pucker. I promise you, your husband. Oh, yeah. Your husband will gladly become a nut pucker. Okay. Yeah. 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 I am so interested in that. They sound delicious. They are. And I agree. I would rather live to 100 with chocolate than to 110 without. Yeah. 
So yeah. I say, I don't know about past lives or future lives, but if there is such a thing, I came to this incarnation for the food. And Kim, I love food. I was a chef in Melbourne. I worked in some of the best restaurants, you know, in the world. And I still love my food. And I still cook every day, cook real food. But on the weekend, I will have a cinnamon croissant at the farmer's market. It's just my thing. And doesn't happen every weekend because you know what? It loses. The more nourished I get, uh, these foods lose their their hold on me. Mm-hmm. So, and then I have upgraded choices like the nut box. So I don't need to have a commercial brand of chocolate because it tastes so much better. And you can start to do that with everything and understand that your palate will change as you get more and more nourished. It will acclimate, and it's not just physically. So in the Sweet Freedom program where we work with people to end sugar addiction, four weeks into it, we ask them to give up sugar, but we don't dream of having them give up sugar until we've gone through a process of hypernourishment, which really helps them to identify where in their lives are they toxic mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, and start to eliminate and replace those toxic influences or substances or behaviors with nourishing ones. So when it finally gets to the point where you're actually giving up that thing that's not serving you, if I had a chocolate addiction that I couldn't resist and I was eating every day and I was dreaming about and I was waking up eating it and going to bed eating it, then it's not serving me. But as I have it now, I can have a nut puck or two a day and I feel satiated and happy and satisfied and it's not interfering with my health. But if I did have something where it was going on where I was toxic in those areas, I need to start to remove the influences that are creating what we call in psychology cognitive dissonance or just disturbances within our human algorithms to kind of extrapolate on a a phrase that I've used before. But what happens then is as you start to have more upbuilding experiences spiritually, and you're removing anything toxic, you know, in your spiritual world, when you start to mentally put more positive input, like a podcast, positive productivity, right? So you're listening to something and you're very clear when you interview people in the notes that you send to us ahead of time that it's, you know, this is about positivity. If you're looking for an argument, cancel the show. (laughs) I thought that was brilliant. You know, you're really setting the tone for the parameters in which you want to engage with people. And I think what happens and what I've noticed working with clients for many years is that they will not even be aware that the mental stimulus is actually creating this anxiety within them. So they get addicted to shows where people are always dying or they're being arrested or there's crimes or there's, you know, horrible deaths. And then they don't realize that when they're eating later on, late at night after watching it, that those two things are actually connected. And when they start to put more positive mental input into their body, instead of reading crime novels, they start to read, you know, some more uplifting material, whether that's nonfiction, that's, you know, for personal growth and development, or just novels that are really inspiring, true life stories of, you know, people overcoming adversity, that all those little things that happen to us mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically impact our sense of level of well-being and how we actually feel about the world. And as we start to remove more and more areas of discomfort, uh, or we learn to deal with our discomfort in a much more healthy way emotionally, we're no longer using substances and behaviors. We're actually starting to build strength and resilience so that when it comes to that time where someone says, okay, we're going on a 30-day challenge and you're not going to have any sugar, you're in a very different place than had you not addressed those things. Absolutely. You just made me aware that since, well, I've shared on the podcast before that I have 
drastically changed the people that I'm following on social media. I've unsubscribed from numerous newsletters and unfollowed people who were not in the same lane that I'm in now. And when you were just talking about that, I've realized that my post-dinner snacking is very rare now. And I had never Mm -hmm. thought about that before. But I also have to share, while you were just saying that, I got a pop-up notification from my grocery store that Nabisco Oreo cookies are on sale for (laughs) $1.49. What convenient timing. I probably wouldn't have noticed it. I'm not a cookie person, but I just find it so funny. It's like always right there in front of us. Wow. Yeah. Cocaine for sale. Cheap. Everywhere. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. And if, and I can see that actually I'm struggling whether or not to say this. I don't know if he's changed in the eight years since I divorced him, but when I was married to my ex, he, he watched a lot of Law and Order and NYPD Blue and all of those types of things. And he was a stacker. Yeah. And overweight. Yeah. And it's amazing how we completely disconnect and think this negative programming doesn't impact us. And it mm-hmm. absolutely does. You know, it's even little insidious things like I'm Canadian, I live in Canada. And when Trump was elected, I felt kicked in the stomach. Now, it had nothing to do with Hillary. It had more to do with his views on women and racial and all those other kind of aspects that I just felt I was so saddened by it. So and what happened was, is I the next day I put on my Facebook page, you know, I just felt like I'd been kicked in the stomach. Now, that's all I put. And then I had people who were so mean and like, I, I didn't even say anything, you know, about your president or anything like that. But I had such vitriolic, I couldn't believe it. And I remember for a time I was engaging in that and defending myself and, you know, explaining and also gleefully engaging with people in anti-Trump sentiments. And it took me quite a few months before I realized this is toxic behavior. Sherry, no matter what beliefs or political things that anytime you speak negatively about another human being, it's toxic. You know, you can disagree with things, but to take apart another person, no matter how diabolically different their belief system is to you or their behavior is to you, no good can come of it for me. And so, you know, it's there's subtle little things that you can actually think are perfectly acceptable. But when you start to realize how they impact your body? Is it making you stronger or weaker by, you might think that being angry and expressing vitriol to whoever opposes your political belief system, but that anger itself after a certain point is only going to start to weaken your body. And I did notice that it did impact my eating behaviors that started to return to emotional eating. And when conversely, when I moved into a place of starting to understand how might he have been raised, you know, and what kind of environment and what kind of parenting, what kind of fathering did he have that would allow him or contribute to him having those beliefs. And when I started to approach it from that viewpoint, I started to have compassion for another human being. I still disagree mm-hmm. with a lot of things, yeah, you know, but when I approach dealing with my understanding the world, from a more compassionate place. It helps me out. And I know that I'm a more peaceful person when I'm thinking things from a more compassionate place. And then that ripple effect of being more peaceful to my neighbor will, you know what I mean? It's, we're all energetic beings and energy ripples out, not just internally, but to the people in our families and our friends and our communities. And it's only through having nourishing, positive and healthy input mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, that we're going to shift and make those changes. 
Oh, I can totally see that. When I made the shift of who I was following, my husband, coincidentally, at the same time was reading Pastor Rick Warren's A Purpose Driven Life. Mm -hmm. And he works in retail. My husband does. He's a manager. And it's easy to get caught up in gossip there. My husband's not much of a talker, period, except (laughs) for with me and the kids. But I started to talk to him one night about some things that were going on in my business. And he looked at me and I remember that he said, is this gossip? Because if it's gossip, I really don't want to participate in it anymore. And right then, I realized how much drama I was bringing into my own life and negativity by talking about people. And I wasn't even doing it that much. But the more I started looking around, I realized there was so much drama out there and so much gossiping. So Mm -hmm. as I've been scrolling through social media, I've actually started unfollowing or unfriending people who are only bringing the gossip and the drama into their feeds. As a result of doing that, I've also reclaimed so much of my time because I wasn't getting caught up in it myself. Oh, absolutely. And just to, you know, it's it's a human behavior that it's toxic behavior that's very socially acceptable. It's like the sugar of the mental and emotional world, right? The spiritual sugar. And at least just you might feel good in the moment, like the sugar rush, but it leaves a bigger low and a bigger hangover for having done it than it leaves you with that positive feeling. So it impacts everything. We're an amazing amazing species. And I think we're just starting to scratch the surface of understanding how we actually work efficiently as a species. Oh, yeah, so toxic. And what's been even more amazing to me is just the just becoming more aware of how much I'm talking about other people or how much I'm not anymore. Because when I find myself getting ready to type something or to say something, I'm much more aware of it. And I and I stop myself. But I've also realized that the people who do continue to do it, even about me behind my back, they get caught. And it never works out well. And the same can be said for eating food in secret, you know, the stuff that we know that we shouldn't have been eating. Mm -hmm. What we do will catch up with us one way or another. Mm -hmm. So I want to actually bring this back to our, our original conversation away from gossip. But how I'm curious how we can be more aware of what's going on with our body without being hypochondriacs. I think that's the right word. How can we be more aware of the effects of the food that we're eating without being overly concerned and making stuff up? I hope that makes sense. You actually brought up the a word that's really important, and it is awareness. It's not about hypochondriacism. It's just, so what happens, and this is so important you brought this point up, is because we've got so used to eating a toxic diet that's not nourishing we just kind of get used to a feeling of malaise and symptoms of pathology. We get used to it. We think it's normal life. But when you start to observe and study and you become aware, you start to realize, oh my goodness, when I have this, this happens, you know, 20 minutes later. And when I have this, this happens to me the next morning. And when I eat this thing, I burp it up and I repeat the same flavor each time. So you start to observe, become aware of how these things are impacting your body. That's why Sweet Freedom, we don't have you give up sugar right away. We want you to be aware of number one, how much sugar you're having, because awareness is really important than if you just switch 
the next day to also becoming aware of the triggers. So when I have this conversation, I gossip with so-and-so, you know, on the way home, I'll go pick up a muffin or a cookie or a donut, right? Or something as simple as, and this, you know, you get to levels and layers of your awareness. And for me, I had this, when I used to get up and speak and give a presentation that was self-righteous or just too pure, if that makes sense. I would, so there's philosophies I teach and they're very understanding what we're meant to be eating in nature. It's very purist, but I don't live like I live in nature. I use those philosophies to understand what it is I'm meant to be eating and I aspire to live that way. But if I used to get up and I would be speaking and it was subconscious, I wasn't trying to say I'm this perfect person because I'm not, but I would be teaching the philosophies and if I represented it or myself in a way that was just kind of too pure and not exactly reflecting on how I live, on the way home, I would be craving something sweet or a donut or cooking. It was almost like I was trying to <laughs> balance things out. So it's amazing how subtle the levels and layers of our awareness can actually start to work. But when you become aware of the triggers that cause you to have sugar or gluten or any of those foods, and then you become aware of what happens after you have those things and how they can have many different effects from your mood to your, you know, energy levels, to your brain fog, to there's, you know, 144 diseases and chronic conditions associated with just sugar alone. That's not gluten. That's not, you know, a lot of contaminants like, you know, dairy in our food. And as we start to cut them out, we start to realize, oh my goodness, I think so much clearer now. You know, I, I'm not on this emotional roller coaster. You know, I'm not anxious all the time. There are foods that I have that create intense anxiety within my body. And just by cutting some few things out and upgrading them, so making healthier version swaps for them, you can be cutting out brain fog, mood swing, you can sleep better, you can wake up more refreshed, you have more positive interactions with people, you're not having the slump at 3 p.m. You're not having headaches and chronic pain. And there's just so many things that you start to realize that you're not actually giving stuff up. You're trading and you're liberating yourself from this general malaise that we just get used to and we forget. Or in some cases, we don't even know what it's like to live in a natural, live, healthy body that's at homeostasis, which is our factory settings, which are off the charts, you know, energy and a happy, joyful predisposition and ability to work through problems and through stress in a, in a really grounded, strong way. Wow, Sherry. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say besides well, because now I'm going to be taking a much harder, more, uh, I don't, I don't even know how to say it properly, but a much better look at when I eat and what I'm eating just to start looking deeper at my habits because I do want to be getting healthier. I've realized that I have not been getting healthier as I've been getting older. However, I definitely want to get healthier. I want to see so much more of my life. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming on today. I'm sure that the listeners have gotten just as much out of the conversation as I have. So on that note, where can listeners find you online and connect with you, get to know more about you and your programs and everything else great that you have to offer? Oh, thanks. So the probably one of the stops is sweetfreedom.ca because the site is in Canada. But we have over 50 blog posts over 50 recipes. The YouTube channel is Sherry Strong. If you just YouTube and Sherry Strong, we've got over 60 videos there with just tips, 
strategies and tools to help you not only get off of sugar, but, you know, live a, that, a sweet freedom lifestyle where you actually do feel you can have all the sweet things in life bring us joy without the sweet things that actually bring us the downside and just feel like we're in a prison in our bodies, in our lives. Great. And listeners, just so you know, all the links and resources that we talked about in today's chat will be in the show notes, which you can find at thekimsutton.com forward slash PP318. Sherry, do you have a parting piece of advice or a golden nugget that you can offer to listeners? Yeah, you know, I studied nutrition a lot and I think it's brilliant. It's wonderful. And I, I think it's really important for us to understand how it is we're meant to be eating as the human species. But one of the things that I learned that you don't often find in nutrition books is that the social context in which we eat is as powerful as what we're eating. And I'd much rather have a greasy bowl of noodles with people who are kind, positive, loving and upbuilding or some pizza roll-ups <laughs> with people who are kind, positive and upbuilding than to have the most gourmet, nutritiously prepared meal with people who are angry, depressed, and negative. But saying that, I want to plant the seed of imagine having food that is nourishing, energizing, and protective. Have conversations that are kind, loving, and upbuilding. And to share that meal and give thanks for not only the food that's at the table, but to just go around the table and start to think about what you're grateful for for that day. You know, Shauna Kaur, a happiness researcher, has shown that a child who is genetically predisposed to depression, lifelong depression, can actually become a lifelong optimist by just sharing three things they're grateful for at the evening meal. And I think if we can actually make that switch, if we can start to come together and prepare food that's seasonal, local, organic, and whole, and we can share that food, being grateful for it, being grateful for one another, reestablishing our connections as families and communities, that sugar addiction, and in fact, all addictions really will be things of the past. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Positive Productivity Podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I'm supporting six to seven figure business coaches with their marketing automation and entrepreneurs like you through my coaching and mastermind programs. I want to invite you to visit thekimsutton.com to learn how I can help you take your business to the next level. Ooh.